Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. <laughs> uh, exegesis. Um, to the, all those people online, I hope you are well. Um, hi, everyone say hi to those online. Those who are unwell, we do have people unwell in the church at the moment. We have people going through things at the moment. So the things that Nisha highlighted in the prayer points, we haven't just brought them out of nothing. They've come from the church. So please pray for people within the church. We are all family, whether we're here on a Sunday morning, whether we're not here on a Sunday morning. We all, uh, that verse uh, Nisha was saying, when we, we all go through things together. We all celebrate, we grieve together. And so to those who can't make it, we're praying for your healing and we're praying that you can be with us in the future, but you can be with us online right now. But we're going to get into exegesis. Say exegesis. I am, (laughs) Jesus is good. I feel like most people have been here for the exegesis series, so I'm going to skim through the first part um, because we're talking about the Bible, because the Word of God is living and active, is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We want to know the Bible more. We want to know the Word more, because Jesus is the living Word. We want to know it more, and we want to understand it more. Ways that we can do this well is we can exegete or we can eisegete. Which is the good one? Exegesis. Eisegesis is one, is one you could do, but it's one that we would encourage you to focus your attention on exegesis instead. So what we're going to do instead is, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to exegete a passage. Exegete means to lead out of a by reading a text carefully, objectively, and analytically. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to read a passage, and we're going to create a conclusion or a meaning out of it by understanding what the original meaning of the text was. We're not going to fluff up a, uh, a meaning. We're going to extract the original meaning. So who wants to do that this morning? It's great. I uh, it's been nice. Like uh, last week, we had Clayton come, and uh, and uh, it gives me a bit of a break to be able to get fresh into a, a like a message where I'm not preaching back to back to back. And I love being able to get into a good exegesis. To be honest, this is my one of my favorite um types of sermon to preach because I'm literally just unpacking the Bible and then telling you about it, which is fun. But I think it's something that we all grow from. You know, one of the reasons why we really want to push exegesis is so you can be empowered. Because at the end of the day, like you might travel with us for a season, but you'll be able to exegete for the rest of your life if you learn the tools of it. And I am not God. I am not the priest between you and God. I am just a person. I'm a pastor in a role. And I want to empower you to know God through the Word. So let's know God through Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40. If you're a Bible bring, a bringing to church kind of person, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 40. And it is called the parable of the sheep and the goats. The sheep 
and the goats. And it says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and he gave me food. I was thirsty, and he gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. This passage actually goes on to 46 as well, uh, from 40 to 46. And then Jesus who is the, talks about the king addressing those on his left, who are the goats, sheep and goats, those who did not care for the least of these. Jesus says to them, depart from me. You will not in, receive eternal life, but eternal punishment. You will not inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Ultimately, Jesus was very serious about taking care of the least of these. This is not optional in Jesus' eyes. Jesus was very very, very serious about caring for people in need. So, what is the first step of exegesis? Who remembers? Does anyone remember? Observation. It is observation. I lost my slide. It is observation. So we have the five, the five questions. Who, what, where, when, why? Who, what, where, when, why? When we're exegeting the passage, we ask these five questions. The first one being who. So if we read this passage, we ask the question, who is involved? And straight, straight out, we can say, Jesus is involved. Who agrees with me? Jesus is involved because he is the one talking. Fun fact, Jesus is also referred to as the Son of Man. So Jesus is talking about himself in third person because Jesus is allowed to. But Jesus is involved and Jesus is the Son of Man. That's one of his names. The other people, uh, who else is involved is people from all nations who will be separated into the categories of sheep and goats. Who's a sheep person? Who's a goat person? Who likes sheep or who likes goats? Yeah, <laughs> they're both delicious. Everyone's a little bit wary because of the, the biblical reference to it. It's, which one's better in a curry? That's probably the question I should have asked. Nisha. Anyway, and the pescatarian. <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> uh, and there's also... A reference to brothers. So in this verse, there's a reference to brothers. That what you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you do unto me. So we need to hold on to brothers in this exegesis. We need to recognize that that is a significant inclusion of language there. 
Second question, what are they doing? So Jesus is actually talking privately to his disciples. So this is a private conversation. This is private. One, uh, 12 of my disciples, yo, come away. We're going to step, step around the corner and we're going to have a, a conversation. Meaning this is a pretty significant, significant conversation that Jesus is having with them. So where are they? The third question, where? So it's widely recognized that this conversation is happening on a place called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, which is opposite and 80 meters higher than the the Jewish temple of the time. So keep this in mind. This is all significant, this information. The Mount of Olives was a significant place of prayer and a very prominent burial site for the Jewish people. So Jesus chose a holy, traditional place to deliver something called the Olivet Discourse. Say the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse. This is something that we can unpack a little bit another time. I'll I'll talk about it later in this message, but we need to recognize that this this is part of something called the Olivet Discourse. So when did this happen? That's the next question. When? It says in Matthew 26, 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, the Olivet Discourse, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. So this happened two days before the Passover, just before Jesus died. Because the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So Passover wasn't a specific day, but started on a specific day. So it was a week-long festival celebrating the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, which Heather led us through so amazingly earlier this year. So what Jesus shared, he shared this discourse with his disciples two days before one of the most significant festivals in Jewish tradition. So all this, collate all this information. He shared it two days before one of the most significant festivals of the Jewish tradition. Jesus knows that he will be crucified soon. So he's passing down as much information about the kingdom of God as possible. Yeah? You following me? Then the last question we ask is, why? Why is this happening? What happens afterwards? Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him. Jesus is preparing his disciples for life without him because ultimately, as we know, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, and then he ascends to heaven and leaves the Holy Spirit behind. The Holy Spirit comes to guide them. So Jesus needed to go so the church could be the church and spread the gospel. But first, Jesus needs to teach them as much as possible about the kingdom of God. So why this is happening is Jesus is like, hey, two days, Passover starts, and I will be crucified soon. I need to tell you as much as possible about the kingdom of God. Why? Because you're the ones who are then going to spread it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, All right, hey guys, come step aside. 
I'm going to share something extremely important with you. I need you to take note. Then what's going to happen is I'm going to leave that the Holy Spirit might come so you can go and spread the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's downloading as much information as possible. Who goes into an exam without studying? <laughs> yeah. You know, if, or if you're wanting to learn or you're, you're an apprentice, you go and you learn as much as you can before you get set out on your own. So Jesus is doing this with his disciples. So those are the five questions of observation. So we've seen that Jesus is, has, has basically set his disciples up with as much information as possible about the kingdom of God. Then what we move into for us, and this is the part where, I don't know if you remember, but interpretation is probably the most volatile part of the message because we need to make sure that we're interpreting, interpreting, truly, interpreting, interpreting, truly. We need to make sure that we're interpreting well because eisegesis means that I create my idea and find a verse that lines up with my idea as opposed to this is what it says, what it means, and out of it I create an application. So interpretation, what does the passage mean? And this is the part where things actually start to get a little bit complex. You get, this is, at the first reading of this passage, it seems pretty simple. Whenever you care for someone in need, it is though you're caring for me. But it says in, like I was saying, it says, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So what we have to focus on here is the distinction between sheep and goats and Jesus using the terminology, my brothers. The distinction between sheep and goats and Jesus using the terminology, my brothers. So for us to understand, truly understand, we need to exegete truly. So we have the few questions that we need to ask. So the first question was, is what does the passage mean? So what is being said? So if we, if we go through this and if we take into account the timeline of Jesus sharing this with his disciples and the placement of this passage, what we do is we discover an overarching meaning. This is part of the Olivet Discourse, which is a biblical passage found in Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's part of something called the Synoptic Gospels but we'll, we'll leave that for another day. But it is also known, and this is a fun, fun fact, is also known as the Little Apocalypse. The Little Apocalypse. Olivet, the Olivet Discourse is known as the Little Apocalypse because it includes the use of apocalyptic language. We'll explain what that means. But it includes Jesus' warning to his followers that they will suffer tribulation and persecution before the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of God. So this has taken a turn. This is starting to look a little bit different to what it means, what we think it means, even though I tell you it ends up probably in the place we, th we all thought it would. So what Jesus is describing here is what the end times could look like when he returns to set up his kingdom. So what Jesus is doing and this is what apocalyptic language is. Jesus is using language that emphasizes and lifts the veil between heaven and earth and the revelation of God and his plan for the world. 
So apocalyptic language lifts the veil between heaven and earth and, and the revelation of God and his plan for the world. So basically, the Olivet Discourse, what he's trying to get across, Jesus is saying, listen, take notice. This is super, super important because this is in alignment with what God wants to do with this world in the future, in his kingdom. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. That's in verse 31. Jesus returns and we're looking at humanity redeemed and saved and humanity condemned and lost. So it's the sheep and the goats, left and right, saved and unsaved. So Jesus is saying, we're going to, when I return, you'll have two categories, sheep and goats, saved and unsaved. And basically, if you go through this casually and you read this, it seems as though salvation is a result of good works. You take care of the, the people in need, you'll receive salvation. You'll be a sheep, you won't be a goat. But if we look at it more and we realize that Scripture does not contradict itself, the Bible clearly teaches and repeatedly that salvation is by faith through grace and not by our good works. So the scripture that we're reading makes it seem as though the sheep will be saved because they took care of the least of these. And the goats will not be saved because they did not take care of the least of these. And so it seems as though what Jesus is saying is this is the future, you have to do good works, which I, w- I believe is true, but what he's saying here is there's a distinction because there are dis- the, the sheep and the goats were doing good works or acting from different places. If we read in Matthew 25, 34, Jesus himself makes it clear in the parable that salvation of the sheep is not based on their works, that their inheritance was there since the creation of the world. So long before they could do any good works. So Jesus is saying the good works mentioned in the parable, the sheep, are not the cause of salvation, but the effect of salvation. So the parable is saying that your good works are not the cause of your salvation, but the effect of your salvation. As Christians, we become like Christ. And in Galatians 5.22, it tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Good works in your life, in a Christian's life, are the direct overflow of these traits. They're only acceptable to God because of the relationship that exists between servant and master, the saved and the savior, the sheep and the shepherd. Your good works are the effect of salvation, not the cause of your salvation. So the core message of the parable of the sheep and goats, the meaning is that in the kingdom of God, the apocalyptic language, the kingdom of God, the eternity, God's people will love others. Good works will result from our relationship with the shepherd Followers of Christ will treat others with kindness, serving them as if they were serving Christ himself. The the effect of your salvation. Good works are not the cause of your salvation, 
but the effect. So what was the author trying to say to his original readers? And how would they have understood the passage? So like I was saying, we have to understand the choice of Jesus' words, where he shared the discourse and his overall mission. Because Jesus spent the majority of his time with Jewish people. He spent the majority of his time with Jewish people. He was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. He recognized Jewish traditions always, even though he didn't always follow them. He revolutionized them. So our first tendency when reading this passage is to assume that its primary message is to care for everyone in need. But what Jesus was really wanting to highlight was how the church should be the epitome, the epicenter, and the example of love and charity towards each other. How the church, between itself, should be the epitome the example and the epicenter of love and charity towards each other. Because it says, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. My brothers are not everyone in need, but those of the same faith and beliefs. Your brothers and sisters in faith. Should we take care of everyone in need? Yes, of course. Of course we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying this is what the passage is saying right now. So when there is pain, hurt, suffering, persecution, will you take care of those in need? It says in John 13, 35, when there is uh, by all this all, people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It says in 1 John 4, 20 to 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has... whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus' first ministry was to the Jews. It was to the Jews. It was to the world as a whole, yes, but as his first ministry was to the Jews because he was the Trojan horse to the Jewish religion. Jesus came into the Jewish religion to revolutionize and change the uh, Jewish religion. Jesus came in not to abolish, but to fulfill the laws, to change it from the inside out. He came in so he could, the Jewish tradition could impact the Gentiles. His first ministry was to the Jews, and his second ministry was to the Gentiles. But this is the thing about it. Jesus ministered to the Jews for the Gentiles. He came and ministered to the Jews for the Gentiles. Was he ministering to the Gentiles? Uh, As a whole, yes. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He came on behalf of all people, but he came through the vice, through the, the vehicle of the Jewish church to change it from the inside out to reach the world. The thing about it was that the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the foundation of the church. But unfortunately, the Jews were also the goats in this story. In this story, the Jews were the goats. Jesus shared this parable overlooking the temple, referencing my brothers to his Jewish disciples and making a clear and distinct point. Your religion of works is broken. 
Your inability to love and care for your own will hinder your ability to love and care for those who do not belong to your religion. The Jews needed to change or they would end up not receiving the kingdom. The Jews were in danger of of not receiving grace for sin because they were not people of faith but people of works. The good works that they did were for their salvation, not the cause, the effect of their salvation. The good works were so they could attain salvation, but they were not the impact of salvation in their life already. So Jesus, like I was saying, wants us to care for those in need. We just have to look at the picture, the story of the the parable of um, the Good Samaritan, that God wants us to care for those in need. But Jesus was making a distinct point to his Jewish disciples who were God's chosen people um, through Israel, that if you love and care for people to receive salvation, you are not truly loving and caring for people. Because the kingdom of heaven will be a place where the church loves their own so much that the love overflows to a world in need. You love the church and the people within it so much, and that love overflows onto the world. We should be the epitome, the epicenter of it. And in this tension, you know, I don't know if you've mentioned me talk about before, the tension of the now and the not yet. What God has is doing now, but what he has said will be the future. The kingdom... Uh, the kingdom being established and the kingdom of Christ re- uh, when Christ returns, we are God's people and we are to be an example of love. So now and in the future, now and not yet, we are the example of God's love to the world. And that needs to overflow from our love to one another. Because if you can sit next to someone and hold a grudge to them, yet walk out of the church and say, I, I love people, do we truly love people? Do we truly love people if we're not sharing or expressing love to the person next to us? What the author is trying to say to me, in Mark 12, verse 30 to 31, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. Love God. And let that love overflow to those in the church. And let the love overflow to those in need. And when you love those in need, what you do unto them, you do unto God. As you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. The author is telling us that God's eternal kingdom, the kingdom of heaven on earth, is defined by love. You can't say you love those in need and hate those in the church. If you love God, that love should overflow outwards. I don't know. I've, I've struggled with that, I'll be honest. I went through it. I'm, a, I'm the, the product of a church split. I'm the, the product of a church split. But how can I say that I love people in need and not love the person sitting next to me? When Jesus goes to the disciples and says, hey, you want to love and change the world, yet you're not willing to make peace with your brother or sister in Christ. Is that the example that Jesus wants? Is that the example God's saying? Like when we go to people and we say, hey, 
Let me reach out and help you and help you. And then they look at a fractured church where the church is fighting amongst itself. There's denomination breaking out because they don't like the way that they preach. What example is that to the world of love? Jesus was very serious because he was coming to his own people, the Jewish people, his disciples, and saying that whatever you do to your brothers, you do to me. Do you love the church? There are some really bad people who have hurt us and done things unsavory towards us in the church. So it's a massive, massive call. But we as a church want to be people who love the world, love people in need. So we need to get ourselves aligned. Because when we love those around us in the church, that overflows more freely to those in need. So correlation, it says in Ephesians 2.8, For as by grace you have been saved, it is not of your own works. And in Romans 14.10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. These two verses correlate with this passage. And add, oh, sorry, next slide. And they add, they complement it and add weight to what this passage is. And the far last thing is application. How should this passage affect my life? The questions we can ask is like, is there a command for me to obey? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is there a truth that has affected me? You know, for the sake of time, I just want to give it to uh, tell you what applications I've brought out of it. But one is take care of those in need, those within the church and those who are not in the church. Those who sit next to you and those that you send money to or resource to or you pray for. Then we can say, is there a sin for me to avoid? I say, don't condemn those you call brother or sister. We we love to tear people down. It's just, we love drama particularly if they're tall poppy syndrome, and I'm guilty of it. But I need to love those in the church because I love those who aren't in the church. And I want to get that example and that alignment with God correct. And the truth for me is God wants me to overflow with love to my brother and sister in Christ and to the stranger in need. We exist to love and care for everyone, but it starts with your relationship with God. And it overflows from there. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that you would impact our life. You convict us where we need to be convicted. You challenge us where we are struggling. Lord, I pray that you will give us love for those who have heard us who are part of the church to help us overflow more love into the world around us. Lord, I pray we wouldn't create a bottleneck of ourselves for ourselves, 
but Lord, that we could come willingly to you and ask you to point out where in our lives we need to change or turn around or repent. So God, I pray that we'll just know your love more so the world can know your love more. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.